Today I am reading Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth, from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed by his words. But Jesus said, them, said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Amen. Not long after we moved to Estes Park, I enrolled Ellie in a tumbling dance class that at her young age was much more tumbling than anything else. And I wanted Ellie to learn grace and agility but I also personally wanted to connect with some of the other parents in town. Um, but at first I found this kind of difficult. One day I was standing in the waiting area looking in through the window. Usually I went inside with Ellie and kind of helped her through the stuff. But this time I thought, well, I'll, I'll let her on her own and I'll just kind of observe through the window. So as soon as I found my place uh, standing there watching, I noticed that a lady was right behind me, one of the other moms. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry, am I in your way? And I was expecting a friendly, not at all. But instead I got, it's okay, I'll move. And she scooted to the side. And I thought, okay, well, I'll try to make conversation with her. So I said, um, now isn't your daughter Emmy? And she said, no, it's Emmeline. And I misunderstood and I repeated back, oh, I'm sorry, Emily. And she said, no, Emmeline. And so I got it. I said, oh, okay, Emmeline. She said, yes, but we call her Emmy. <sighs> Have you ever just had those moments where you think something should go one way and it just doesn't quite go that way? Today, uh, as Danny said, we're going to talk about the rich young ruler. And I feel the same way about this story. I've always been bothered by it because it didn't go the way I expected it to go. It was frustrating to me when I thought it would end one way, but it ends another. 
But I thought maybe that's a good place to start, right? I'll try to dig in and figure out why this particular Bible story bothers me. So first, I don't like it because this man comes to God and asks, what must I do to be saved? And I see myself in him because I have been this person. You know you've done everything right, and now you are looking for confirmation. He is probably eagerly awaiting what Jesus says next. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not lie. And like the star student, the man probably doesn't even wait for Jesus to finish before he raises his hand and says, all of these things I have kept since I was a child. And then Jesus says something the man is not expecting. I think the man wanted to be lifted up in front of everyone around him and told that he had already earned himself a place in the kingdom. But instead, Jesus says, one thing you still lack. And this is where the story starts to irritate me. The man has followed the rules and done everything right. But that does not impress Jesus. I am a rule follower. I like the rules. I like to follow them. I like to see them enforced. I like justice. And the times I try to get away with something, I always get caught. So it's just reinforcement to me that rules must be followed. Most recently, I was at the One Project, and I was running late to the very first meeting. I had taken Ellie and Anderson to talk kids, and of course I had to chat with all the leaders there. And then on the way over to the exhibit hall, I ran into my brother Dalton and my sister-in-law Melissa and was catching up with them. And by the time we got into the main lobby, I could hear the music starting. Now, in my defense, they started a whole five minutes early, which bugged me, first of all, because they weren't following the rules. But then I thought, I don't have time to get my name tag now. I'm just going to get it during the break. Look at me being a rebel. I'm just going to go into that meeting without my name tag. And I start walking in beside Dalton and Melissa. And Dalton's tall, so I just thought I can kind of be sandwiched in between them. No one will notice. But of course, the faithful volunteer at the door looked at me, spotted the name tag, makes the little sign, and sends me right back to the lobby. All this is to say, I really like the rules, and the rare times I don't follow them to the letter, I am caught, which makes me believe that everyone should be caught when they don't comply, and the world would be a much happier place that way. So that's the first reason I don't like the story of the rich young ruler. He had apparently followed all the rules, and instead of getting a pat on the back and confirmation of a job well done, he is told there's something more. The second reason I'm bothered by this story is because I've always thought that we should take Jesus' words literally and as our own. So that must mean that, when he asked the, that what he asked the rich young ruler to do, he's also asking me to do. I am to sell everything that I own and give it away to the poor. When I worked at the North Texas Food Bank as a fundraiser, I had the opportunity to work with some very wealthy individuals. They were definitely the type of people who we talk about being in the 1%. We had this thing called a letter writing campaign, and it was led by two or three influential and affluent chairs who would then recruit a few of their friends to be on the committee. 
As a staff member, I would draft the letter for them, and then the committee would all sign their names to the letters, adding special notes for their friends. The committee was comprised mostly of women, popular within their circles, and it was my job to bring the letters and sit in one of their homes for two days while a stream of committee members came in to sign their letters. Each one had a special way of signing. Some would use a simple XO, Another would use the letters M-W-A-H, mwah, before her signature. It all sounded a little bit high school, but the amazing thing was that this letter raised about half a million dollars every year for the food bank. So as I was sitting with the letters for these two days, I got to listen in on their conversations. It was all so foreign to me, but it was really interesting. One time, a lady said to the host, your fall decorations look beautiful this year. To which the host replied, thank you. I don't think they brought as many moms this year, but I'm pretty happy with it. And I'm sitting over to the side in shock. I knew that her decor looked much better than the simple hay bale that I put on my table every year to decorate for fall. But I never considered that some people actually hire other people to come do their fall decorations for them. And it made sense in this case, because you would need a whole truck just to bring in the quantity of pumpkins and moms that this lady had cascading down her front walk. Another time I listened as one woman complained to the other that her boot didn't fit quite right, but she was going to take it to the tailor and have it altered. And simple me was amazed again. I mean, I knew there were tailors for clothes, but I never even considered that someone might actually get their shoes altered to fit. I had always just kind of worn what fit best at DSW and called it good. And finally, nearly every one of these women was a stay-at-home mom. And I heard one remark to the other that she had made a commitment to pick up her preschooler one day a week from school because that was important. The nanny must have done it the other days. And I couldn't help but think, what else do you have to do that's more important? You have a gardener to take care of the outside of your home and a maid to clean the inside and money to go out to eat whenever you'd like. How can you not be available to pick up your child from school? It was just a different world to me. So by comparison to these wealthy Dallas ladies, I am certainly not wealthy. But then everything is relative, right? In today's culture, we might say that this rich young ruler was in the top 1%. So most of us here shouldn't have to worry, right? But that's if you're comparing yourself to other first world countries. If you look at those of us here compared to people worldwide, you will see that nearly every one of us is in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest. Did you know that one in 10 people survive on less than $2 per day? If you make the median income of just $32,000 per year, you are in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? It means we are all wealthy. But even though we are all wealthy, is God asking each of us to give away everything that we own? And I guess the final reason I am bothered by this Bible story is because it doesn't have a happy ending. Encounters with Jesus are supposed to have a happy ending. The stories that I love are the ones where Jesus cast out demons, forgives sins, heals the sick, 
And of course, the best uh, takes place immediately prior to this one. The story where mothers are bringing their children to Jesus so that he will lay his hands on them and bless them. And the disciples tell them to take their children away. And Jesus stops them and says, let the little children come to me. All of these are beautiful encounters with Jesus. Everyone leaves changed for the better and happier. But this story with the rich young ruler has a sad ending. Or maybe even more frustrating, we don't really know what the ending is. We are told in this account in Luke that he became very sad for he was extremely rich. In other gospel accounts, we are told that he went away. We all like happy endings, and this one ends with a sort of womp womp. I have to wonder why, out of all the beautiful stories written about Jesus, why this one? We are told that Jesus did more wonderful things while on this earth than can be written down and recorded. So why did three of the four gospel writers record this same story? The answer to that must be because it's important. So let's take a look at this story, and I'm going to take a minute just to read a portion of it again. This story is found in Luke 18, 18 to 23, or page 972 of your pew Bibles. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. So what was the rich young ruler doing wrong? On the surface, it seems he was doing everything right. First, he acknowledges Jesus as good teacher Second, he has kept the law all his life, but there is a third piece he seems to be missing. He doesn't have a personal relationship with God. He has the head knowledge, but not the heart knowledge. Please turn with me in your pew Bibles to page 985, if you kept them out. John 4, 24. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It appears to me that the rich young ruler had been worshiping in truth all his life. I imagine him stirring up religious debate for the sake of argument and winning every time. I imagine him spending hours studying scripture and probably memorizing long passages. He was perhaps worshiping in truth so long that he began to worship truth over the one who is truth. Perhaps the rich young ruler was the type of person who kept his emotions in check. So much so that he didn't allow himself to give his person over fully to God. He perhaps was someone who loved control. We know he was in control of his finances, his image, and his behavior, always keeping the rules. Maybe he was so in control that he never gave himself over to God in complete worship and surrender. And we are created to worship in the spirit. There are people who criticize emotional worship, and I understand that. Emotions are tricky things that cannot be trusted. Anyone who has ever had a baby can tell you this. 
I remember one day when I was pregnant with Ellie, I came home from work and Aliyah had beat me home and he had already started dinner. My emotions started up, up, up the roller coaster. It wasn't just any dinner, he was making Asian pasta, my favorite, with red peppers and sesame oil and broccoli, climbed higher and higher. And then he said, sorry, we only had half a box of noodles. Whoa, I came crashing down the other side of that roller coaster. I actually burst into tears and I said the words that are now a catchphrase in our house. How could you do that to me? You know how much I love noodles. <laughs> After Ellie was born, my doctor was careful to talk with me about emotions. She said, some crying is normal. You might cry because the sky is so blue that day, but let me know if it becomes more than that, if you find yourself in a deep sadness or depression. And I understood the importance of postpartum depression, but the other stuff she was talking about sounded really stupid. I wasn't going to cry because the sky was blue. I'm a logical person, and I could reason that that was ridiculous. Obviously, at that point, I had forgotten the noodles incident. So, fast forward to us going to my mom's house for Sabbath dinner. We proudly walk in with our new baby and we greet the family. But when I give Melissa a hug, she notices my blotchy red face and she asks, what's wrong? You look like you've been crying. And I remember starting to cry again and relating how on the way over, we were listening to lullabies in the car and one of them was just so sad because the words were, you are growing up so fast, right before our eyes. You don't have to figure everything out, you just take your time. And I said, it's just so true. Ellie is growing up so fast. And at this time, Ellie was two days old. <laughs> So Aliyah and I, we handed Ellie over to the family to pass around and love on, and we crawled into my mom's bed and slept for four blissful hours. He wasn't weepy like me, but we were both exhausted. So exhaustion, hormones, circumstances, they can all wreak havoc on our emotions. But even so, we have our feelings for a reason. I don't believe God wants us to lead a robotic life devoid of emotion. He wants a relationship with us, and relationships are full of feelings, the logical ones and the completely irrational. I don't know anyone who has fallen in love because they knew that they should love that person. There might have been things they were looking for, but the love part was certainly a feeling. God wants us to fall in love with him. There is language about love, trust, surrender, faith, and hope throughout the Bible. These are not robotic actions we are called to, but feelings that take place within a relationship. So when we talk about worshiping in the spirit, we are talking about allowing ourselves to feel something to be overcome by being in the presence of our God. God gave us feelings and emotions for a reason. He wants to communicate with us on a deeper level that is more, that is beyond just head knowledge.
How many of you know the name Eric Liddell? A few of you? For those who don't, you might know the song. Okay, some of you know it. <laughs> he and that song were made famous in the movie Chariots of Fire. And for those who didn't see that movie, he was a runner who took a stand for Christ by not competing on the Sabbath, which he observed on Sunday. At the 1924 Summer Olympics in Paris, Liddell refused to run in the heats for his favorite 100 meters because they were held on a Sunday. Instead, he competed in the 400 meters held on a weekday, a race that he won. What many don't know about this man is that he returned to China in 1925 to serve as a missionary teacher. He died in a Japanese civilian internment camp in 1945. And there are a couple stories of how he died. One is that he gave his food to other starving prisoners and died himself of starvation. Another is that he was offered a chance at freedom but gave his slot to a female prisoner who was pregnant. We know he died in 1945, just five months before liberation. Langdon Gilkey, an American theologian there with him, later wrote, the entire camp, especially its youth, was stunned for days, so great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. Eric Liddell's life of commitment to God and service to others demonstrates that he was a man who was worshiping in the spirit. I remember watching Chariots of Fire as a young kid and thinking, but he was worshiping on the wrong day. Clearly, I missed the point of the film and the point of his incredible testimony. In the movie, Liddell quotes a text from the Bible that says, he who honors me, him will I honor. And this verse is from Samuel. God is talking to Eli about his wayward sons. They have dishonored God and made a mockery of the priesthood. And God tells them in 1 Samuel 2.30, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Surely, Eric Liddell's life was one that God honored. And there are others we see honoring God and wonder, wait, aren't they doing it wrong? While many of us believe we should fight for and protect our country, we see the life of Desmond Doss. He took a stand against bearing arms in the army. He saved the lives of thousands of men as a medic and was a witness to God's love and protection to those whom he served. While many of us believe in a vegetarian diet, we see Chick-fil-A serving thousands of chicken sandwiches every day and they're taking a stand for God by observing a Sabbath rest each week, closing their doors to prophets every Sunday. They are quietly witnessing to a huge audience about God's provision. Here's another extreme example. We certainly don't believe in killing our own children. And yet we see Abraham listening to the voice of God, prepared to do just that. It's confusing, isn't it? I look at stories in the Bible and those in more recent history, and I don't understand. 
I think, God, why can this person do it that way and that person do it that way and yet both seem to be pleasing you? How can people make an impact for you in this world when they don't seem to be following the rules or doing it right? And I am learning that God calls each of us to something unique. The way he calls me to learn and serve is going to look different than the way he calls you. And that's the beauty of serving a God who knows our hearts. I'm not sure when we as Christians decided it was our job to decide who is doing it right and who is doing it wrong. Ephesians Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And this this verse is used by some Christians as a way of seeking out people who they think are in the wrong and publicly calling them out. The whole point of that text is calling us to walk in the light. And when taken out of context, it leads us to some pretty terrible behavior. I once had someone blast me on Facebook because she thought something I set up front was in error, and she felt she needed to sound the alarm. Now, she and I had never met, and she hadn't actually listened to that talk. She had heard someone else give their opinion of what I had said, and based on that, decided to warn others about me. I know you're not supposed to engage on social media because it rarely has any positive results, but I did. I invited her to take the time to watch one of my talks because it was posted online, and I asked that she not say such things about me when she hadn't actually heard anything I had said. And she responded, well, is it true that you think the Holy Spirit is a female? And I just quickly said, well, no. But I didn't say that of all the amazing qualities of the Holy Spirit, I think gender is probably the least important. She responded that she felt we needed to call out wrong when we saw it. I later found a quote by Ellen White, and although it probably wouldn't have made a difference, I wish I had known it then then to share with this particular person. Mrs. White says in the Ministry of Healing, page 492, The very act of looking for evil in others develops evil in those who look. In the very simplest terms, this Facebook person hurt my feelings. She misjudged my intentions. She took something I had meant for good and was publicly calling me out and trying to warn her friends about me. By trying to find and expose the bad in me, She was being mean and kind of bad herself. I don't believe this is how God is asking us to treat each other. And this happens so often. We internally attack each other rather than recognizing that God can work through people in all different ways. In fact, there's a story that's similar to this in the Bible, and it's just three verses long. It's found in Mark 9, 38 to 40. John sees someone casting out demons. It's performed by someone who's not one of the 12 disciples. John decides he needs to sound the alarm. So he comes to Jesus and tattles. He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. And then he says, 
He who is not against us is for us. Isn't that such an interesting story? Jesus hears that good work is being done and that it is being done in his name and he approves. It's as simple as that. I think that's beautiful. But this can be difficult for us to understand because sometimes we fall victim to the idea that there's only one right way to do things and that to meet Jesus and have an instant conversion experience um, sorry, and that to meet Jesus means that we'll have an instant conversion experience and my experience will look exactly like yours. We don't know what the rest of the rich young ruler's conversion story looked like. I hope he went home and reconsidered what Jesus called him to do. It seems that when Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell all he had and give the money to the poor, he was speaking to his priorities. In his book, Parenting, 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family, Paul David Tripp writes, as beings made in God's likeness, we do not function by instinct. Rather, we are value-motivated human beings. Your words, your time commitments, your finances, your emotional highs and lows, your relationships, and your spiritual habits together form a portrait of what is really valuable to you. Jesus already knew what was most valuable to this young man. And it probably wasn't just the money, but all the things that come along with having great wealth, power, prestige, respect. In N.T. Wright's commentary, Luke for Everyone, he writes, in order to inherit Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have looked away. <laughs> in order to inherit the life of the new age, he had to abandon the values of the old and trust himself totally to the new, like a diver throwing himself forwards into the water. He couldn't seriously be seeking for the new age if he couldn't abandon the symbols of the old. The commandments were good and important, but if he was wedded to possessions, which as we've seen, formed an important symbol of identity for the Jews to whom the land had been promised, then he would never be able to accept God's kingdom like a child with the humble trust that allowed God to be God. So I want to challenge each of you to sit in a quiet, reflective time with your creator and ask the same question that the rich young ruler asked. What must I do to be saved? This is a dangerous question to ask. One, because it means we have to be vulnerable and admit that there may be something more that Jesus is calling us to. Second, because you may be asked to do the hardest thing for you to do. Don't ask waiting for affirmation of all the things you are doing right and all the commandments you have kept. Listen quietly for the answer. What is the Spirit telling you? When we do this, I don't think we should be surprised to find that one of us is convicted to follow in a different way than their neighbor. One of you may be asked to give all that you have to serve the poor, but another may simply be asked to step away from some of your good works and serve your family at home. Whatever you are asked to do, 
I beg you to follow the conviction with all your heart. Do not go away sad as the rich young ruler did. Follow where God is calling you and accept that others are not going to be called in the same way. And lastly, support each other in this. He who is not against us is for us. Would you please bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who knows our hearts. You know our greatest dreams and you know our personal priorities. And God, we bring those to you today and we ask that you will take them and you will show us where you want us to go, that you will lead us into the life that you would have us to live. We thank you, God, in your name.